I take my text today from the first epistle of John, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. There we find these words. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. We continue our series through the epistle of 1 John, focusing upon these few verses that have been read this Lord's Day. <clears throat> if I asked you who are married today to give me some evidence that you have communion with your spouse and that you delight in him or her and that you enjoy one another, How would you set about to demonstrate that? Would you dig up your marriage certificate and point to it saying, See, I must have marital communion because I was united to him or her in marriage on such and such a date. Or would you point to the house in which you live, explaining, I must have marital communion because we live in the same house. Or would you possibly point to your children and note, there you have it, proof positive. We must have marital communion because we have the same children. What's the problem here, dear ones? I sought evidence for your communion with your wife and what you have given me is evidence for your union with your wife or with your husband. You pointed out your joint marriage certificate or your joint house or your joint children, which all point to your union. What about your communion with your spouse? If, however, you want to give me evidence that you are enjoying fellowship and communion with your spouse, you will have to present words and behavior that express a delight in one another, an enjoyment of one another's company, and a willingness to sacrifice time in order to be with the one loved You see, the end of marriage, dear ones, is not simply the union of a man and a woman. The end of marriage is the mutual communion of a husband and a wife. And the problem with many marriages today is not that there is no union, but rather that there is little or no communion. A husband might even put forward and point to the food or the clothing and the shelter and many other benefits bestowed upon his wife as evidence of his delight in her. Or a wife may point to all the the diligent work done around the house and in raising the children each and every day as proof of her love and delight for her husband. However, dear ones, if these benefits bestowed in marriage never lead to a mutual communion enjoyed, they may simply be viewed as giving things in exchange for oneself. A communion 
and a delight in the one loved ought to be leading a couple to confess. There is no one on earth that I would rather spend time with than you. The years to come and the years that pass should only cause a couple to grow in greater communion one with another. The longer that you spend time together as a married couple should only cause you to grow ever more in knowing the one who is loved. Not lessening, not weakening, but growing in that direction. Dear ones, communion is the giving of oneself to another. Not simply the giving of things, the giving of oneself. And so I ask you, where is the delight in and the enjoyment of the one to whom you are united in marriage? Have you moved beyond mere union in marriage to enjoying mutual communion in marriage? Are you diligently striving and earnestly praying for such mutual communion in your marriage? Is that important to you at all? You should be. For union without communion, dear ones, is a paradox. But let us now turn from a consideration of marital communion to that of spiritual communion. For marriage, dear ones, is simply an earthly picture of a far greater union and communion that exists between Christ and His bride, His church. Dear ones, communion with Jesus Christ is the goal toward which every step in a sinner's salvation is directed. From God's election of unworthy sinners in eternity to their redemption by Christ, to their regeneration and sanctification by the Holy Spirit, to their glorification in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. All the glories and all the benefits of salvation move Christians to an ever greater degree of familiar fellowship with the infinite God who has loved them and sacrificed His only begotten Son for them. For a vile, undeserving sinner like me to be accepted as righteous in God's sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to me and received by faith alone. And on top of that, to be received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. These, dear ones, are unfathomable blessings in which I can't help but sing the praises of God. But beloved, of such blessings as wondrous as these are, are not ends in themselves. For the goal to which they point and the end to which they are directed is that of enjoying communion with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember that the chief end of man is not only to glorify God, but also to enjoy Him forever. And you know the unspeakable privilege of this communion with God is not only that we enjoy and delight in communion with the Lord in all His majesty, power, and love, the mystery of all mysteries, the Most High God infinite and holy in all of His perfections and excellencies, enjoys and delights to have communion with me. The sinful speck of dust that has rebelled against Him and has shown contempt for His mercy and love and ignores and neglects even those blessed times 
of communion with him. He wants to have communion with me. Not only do I commune with God, but God communes with me and with every child of God. And that which is true in the marital realm is also true in the spiritual realm. Union with Christ that does not lead to communion with Christ is a paradox. This is a message we cannot ignore if we would have assurance that we have been truly united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Union and communion, dear ones, are inseparable. Although communion with Christ may falter and may, may grow weak at times, we may leave our first love with our Savior sinfully. Where there is no evidence of communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, there can be no assurance of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, where there is evidence in your life that there is a desire to be with Christ now and for all eternity, to know Him and to grow in your knowledge of Him, and to please Him by submitting to Him in every area of your life, then there is tangible evidence that you truly belong to Him and He belongs to you. This Lord's Day, we shall be focusing our attention upon this inexpressible privilege of communion with God and in particular, what are evidences of one who enjoys communion with Christ. What are evidences that we can look for in our own lives which point to the fact that we have communion with the Lord Jesus Christ? In the passage before us, the Apostle John lists three evidences of communion with Christ. First of all, and I'll list them all, at the outset, and then we'll look at each of them briefly this Lord's Day. The first evidence of communion with Christ, Christ giving to us His Spirit. Verse 13. The second evidence, our confessing the truth concerning Christ. In verses 14 through 15. And thirdly, our loving God and the brethren. In verse 16. Let us then begin by considering the first evidence of communion with Christ, and that is Christ giving to us His Spirit. I read verse 13 of chapter 4. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. <clears throat> in Scripture, there were two primary steps that formally brought a man and a woman into union at betrothal and marriage. Number one, a covenant. And number two, a dowry. Both of these gifts, you might say, were provided by the groom. And until such a time as the covenant and the dowry were accomplished, there was no union. We find even in the scripture in Malachi 2.14, this said concerning a wife, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Union was sealed by a covenant. And we read concerning a dowry in Exodus 22.17 that it was a sum of money in order to secure a wife and it was called, quote, the dowry of virgins. The dowry of virgins. Well, similarly, in the spiritual realm, before being joined to Christ by faith, 
that is in union with Christ as his bride. There is a covenant and a dowry. In the covenant of grace, the Father gives to his Son a bride who is yet polluted with sin. And yet out of love for his bride, the Son leaves the glories of heaven in order to save her by giving to her his own righteousness and taking from her the guilt and the penalty of her sin. And the dowry for this sinful bride is paid with that which holds more value than anything else in the world. The life of God's only begotten Son. Dear ones, without this covenant and this dowry, if you will, there is no spiritual union with Christ as His beloved bride. And if there is no union with Christ by means of one embracing by faith the covenant of grace and the price paid to redeem the bride, there is certainly no communion with Jesus Christ now nor for all eternity. Now having painted for you a picture of our glorious union with Christ as his beloved bride, does Christ then leave us alone simply to reflect upon our blessed union with Him as one would look upon a marriage certificate upon the wall? Or does Christ lavish us with His benefits and blessings to the exclusion of daily communion with us as if the gifts of love could in some way replace the lover who gives those gifts? Absolutely not. You see, this is precisely how the gift of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned in verse 13 relates to our communion with Christ. For the giving of the Spirit to Christ's bride is essentially the giving of Himself to His bride, inasmuch as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God and of the same divine nature. In John 14:23, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, and note that to receive the Son is also to receive the Father. And by the same analogy, to receive the Son is to receive the Spirit. To receive the Spirit is to receive the Son. Jesus says in John fourteen twenty three, <clears throat> If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We will enter into communion and fellowship one with the other. I ask you, dear ones, what more could Christ give than himself in order to demonstrate not only his union with us, but his communion with us? As it is in the natural realm, so similarly it is in the supernatural realm. There is no greater evidence of the delight and enjoyment Christ has for you, his bride, than for Christ to give himself to you through the Spirit, in order that you might daily grow to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him. Here. Dear ones, is the end of salvation. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Remember, it was Paul who said, everything else I'm willing to, to, to sacrifice, to do without, but I must know Jesus Christ. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians. In Ephesians chapter 3, <clears throat> he prays that they may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the end of salvation, that we may know Him and grow in our knowledge of Him. 
and not be satisfied with simply a union with him. I ask you again, what makes heaven, heaven? Is heaven simply your ticket out of hell? Is it simply an eternal family reunion? Is it simply the solution to the aging process? Or, dear ones, is heaven not the uninterrupted communion and the full enjoyment of the triune God for all eternity? Is that not what makes heaven heaven? I dare say, dear ones, that where there is no sincere desire in the heart to enjoy and to commune with Christ here upon the earth, that one will find no place for him in heaven. For the very end of our union with Christ is our eternal communion with Christ in heaven. Again, remember, union with Christ without communion with Christ is a paradox. And thus John declares in chapter 4, verse 13, that we know that we have communion with Christ. The words that he uses for communion with God or with Christ in these three evidences are words like we find in chapter 4, verse 13, that we dwell in Him and He in us. And the way that we know that we have communion with Christ is because He has given Himself to us in giving to us His Spirit. But how do we discern that the Holy Spirit has been given to us? Do we wait for an audible voice or some miraculous event or some supernatural experience to declare to us that Christ has given to us His Spirit? No. We don't wait for those signs. For the Spirit of Christ, dear ones, testifies to us that He has been given to us by His operations in our life. By that I mean the Spirit manifests His presence in our lives ordinarily by the convicting, convicting us of our sin, by granting to us a genuine sorrow concerning our sin, by giving us a love of holiness, a love for the truth, a love for the brethren a hungering and thirsting to know Christ and to enjoy Him forever. The Holy Spirit gives to us ordinarily a desire to show mercy to those who are in need. He gives to us a sincere love for the Lord our God and a steadfast trust in His promises and an earnest fear of all of His threatenings. He gives to us a faithfulness in our covenant obligations, a desire to be faithful to all that we are bound by in covenant. He gives to us a heart of forgiveness when we are wronged, a patient waiting upon the Lord when we are attacked, and blessed time with Him. He gives us the desire to make time to spend in prayer before His face and to read His Word. You see, dear ones, the manifestation of such graces, not the perfection of such graces, but the manifestation of such graces is the ordinary means by which the Spirit testifies that He has been given to us by Christ. Jesus said concerning the Spirit of God in John 3.8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. 
How do we evidence? How do we see the Holy Spirit since He is infinitely God? Since He is invisible? How do we see and know that the Spirit, just like the wind, we look at the trees and the leaves that rustle from the wind. We see the effects of the wind all about us. We feel it in our face, blowing our hair, our clothing. And so by the Spirit of God, we see His operations and manifestations in our life, which give evidence to the fact that God has given to us His Spirit, and therefore we enjoy communion with Him. The second evidence, dear ones, of one who is enjoying communion with Christ is our confessing the truth concerning Christ. We note this in verses 14 and 15. 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him. And he and God. Again, notice that little phrase at the end in verse 15. God dwelleth in him and he and God. Again, indicating this is how we know we have communion with the Lord. Well, we now move in these verses from an evidence which Christ gives to his bride that he has communion with her and delights in her to an evidence the bride gives to Christ that she has communion with him and enjoys him. She confesses his truth and defends his name against all who gainsay and oppose him. In the earthly realm, dear ones, The bride who delights in communion with her husband will certainly not tolerate others to slander and misrepresent him. She will come to his defense, yet to a far greater degree. Those who enjoy communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a perfect husband, will courageously testify to his truth and will expose the sins and errors of those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fervent zeal for the cause of Christ, dear ones, is tangible evidence of our communion with Christ. For we see when we oppose false teaching, error, sin, all around us, when we oppose it. We stand not for our own cause, but for the cause of Christ. His cause has become our cause. And I would go even further to say that our suffering for His name whether it be by ridicule, mockery, isolation from family, even outright persecution, if it is for His name, for His truth, for His righteousness, this is a blue banner that testifies to our communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a blue banner that we unfurl before all that we have communion with Christ and you can't talk that way about my Lord. You cannot speak that way about His truth. Professing Christians and professing Christian churches that do not care to defend the honor and uphold the doctrine of Christ beyond a very basic ABC level of profession of the truth are like a wife who tells those who slander her husband, you can slander and misrepresent him in these few areas 
and I will defend him. But if you slander and misrepresent him in all of these other areas, I will not defend him. It's too costly to defend him in all those areas, in terms of my time, in terms of my comfort, in terms of my pleasures, in terms of, of finding favor with others. There's just too many things I stand to lose if I defend him in all these other areas where he is slandered and misrepresented by others. Now, would you say about such a wife who took that approach? Now, there's a wife that enjoys close communion with her husband. Of course not. And it is similar in our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sought us out to be His bride. Although we are defiled with spiritual harlotries and other lovers, He rescues us from such heinous sin and even the penalty that that sin so justly deserves, which is eternal torment in hell. And how does He do so? By suffering for us the infinite wrath of God which we deserve. He woos His bride unto Himself and gives her eternal treasures. And above all else, the Lord Jesus gives Himself to us personally in eternal communion with Him. Is it not shameful, dear ones, to stand by when Christ's doctrine and worship is slandered and misrepresented? But on the other hand, is it not an evidence when we do stand for His truth and His doctrine and His worship, that we enjoy communion with Him when we confess His truth before others. You see, in the specific historical circumstance which John addresses in this section, it was the heresy of the Gnostics that attacked the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gnostics, you will recall, professed a faith in Christ, but not the Christ revealed in the Bible. They did not look in faith to the inspired Word of God, but rather looked to their own mystical experiences to teach them about Christ. As a result, the Gnostics professed faith in a Christ that was neither fully God nor fully man. Thus, the two doctrinal statements that we find in verses 14 and 15 directly refute the teaching of the Gnostics. For example, when John the Apostle and the other apostles, for he uses the word we, testified. He's speaking of himself and the other apostles. When they testified that, quote, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, they implied that the Son of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, that He was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that He did not come simply to save men, women, and children from all the world by His sinless life, I'm sorry, he didn't come to set it simply an example, but he came to accomplish that, to save men, women, and children from all over the world by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. And when the churches of Asia, to whom John writes in this epistle, when they confessed, as we see in verse 15, that Jesus is the Son of God, they implied by that statement that Christ was not simply a man, but that he was the eternal Son of God who eternally possesses the same divine nature as the Father and the Spirit. And so in these confessional statements that we find in verses 14 and 15, here are Christians standing for the cause of Christ when His name and His doctrine are maligned and slandered. 
But dear ones, is it not true that all false teaching is an attack against Christ, who said that we are to teach all things whatsoever I have commanded you? Is not all false teaching an attack against His divine authority who alone possesses the prerogative to give truth? Whether we consider that truth to be essential or secondary, for He as well has said, whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, to spurn obstinately his truth, whether we consider it essential or non-essential to salvation, is to spurn his love for you. It is to spurn the Lord Jesus Christ himself, for he died to give to you not simply what we consider to be the essentials, but to give to you all his revealed truth. And it is our duty to protect, to guard, and to cherish it if we love the Lord and have communion with him. For you cannot separate who Christ is from what he has taught us to believe. The Gnostics sought to make a distinction between who Christ was and what the Bible taught about Christ. And in so doing, they fell away from the truth. And many professing believers, it seems today, are willing to believe a Christ of their own imagination, not one that is clearly revealed in the Word of God. It is a grievous sin, dear ones, and one which does not testify of communion with Christ. I read for you a section from the letters of Mr. James Rennick who was the last martyr during the time of the covenanted or just post or after the time of the covenanted reformation listen to what he says concerning love for Christ counting the cost standing up for his cause he writes Our natures would have the way so squared that we might travel without a rub. But it lieth through many an encounter. We would have it through a valley of roses, but it lieth through a valley of tears. We would have it so as to be traveled sleeping, but it must be traveled walking and watching and fighting. We would have it to be traveled laughing, but it must be traveled with weeping. If they were possible, 10,000 deaths, 10,000 hells would seem nothing to a soul who gets a sight of Christ at the other side of all these. Oh, Christ is precious. Christ is your upmaking. Oh, what think you of that noble exchange to embrace Christ entirely and quit self entirely. Is not that receiving new wares for old? Is not that a receiving of gold, yea, of gold more precious than the gold of Sheba and a quitting of dust more vile than the dust of the earth? O lovely soul that hath embraced lovely Christ, rich and happy that hath embraced precious Christ, But woe unto them that would divide him and not take him in all his offices, for they have not yet learned him. Woe unto them that think they have no need of Christ, for they know not themselves. Woe to them that think they can close with him when they please, 
for they are ignorant of grace. Woe to them that would have Christ and their own something beside, for they have neither loved nor conceived rightly of him. Woe to them that make excuse for their not following of him, for they know not their folly. Woe to them that will not close with all the crosses and the inconveniences that they might meet with for Christ, for they are rebellious fools that look only to the cost and not to the advantages of religion. They scar at it and give this answer to Christ's call. His sayings are hard, and who can bear them? None do account so of his yoke, but they who have not taken it on. For it is easy and his burden is light. Those who will not believe his word for it, nor the experience of many saints and martyrs, let them take a trial of it themselves, and if they get leave to weary, let them cast it off again. But I am sure there was never one that fully engaged with him that ever could find a heart to quit him again. Oh, that folks would not stand at such a distance, but come near and take a view of him. And they would see that which would inevitably win their hearts. There are two things at which I cannot wonder enough. And these are the invaluableness of Christ and the low value which the children of men put upon him. Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver, but many nowadays sell him for less. And though they could get 10,000 worlds for him, they but make a mad and foolish bargain who would quit him for these. Yea, suppose that it were possible one person could possess 10,000 worlds and that everlastingly he could not have in the use thereof so much contentment by far as the smallest part Christ can give. Yea, one half hour's enjoyment of him would far surpass all the satisfaction in the supposed case. Oh, then, what must the eternal and full enjoyment of him be? Dear ones, faithful confessions, catechisms, Covenants and directories actually bear witness to the truth and testify against those who have attacked Christ through the ages. And if we enjoy communion with Christ our Lord, we cannot be silent when it comes to confessing the truth found in all faithful subordinate standards. My last point this Lord's Day. The third evidence of one who is enjoying communion with Christ is our loving God and the brethren. In chapter 4, verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Because the next section in our text, which we will look at, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, says much more about love for God and the brethren. I simply mention very briefly a couple remarks before we conclude the sermon today. It is not only our words by way of confession of the truth that we give evidence to our communion with Christ. But it's also in our deeds by acts of love for Christ and acts of love for the brethren that we do abundantly testify of our joy in communing with Jesus Christ. As the text says, He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. You see, dear ones, faith without works is dead. 
A faithful confession of faith without a faithful historical testimony as to how that confession is to be lived out is a dead orthodoxy. Doctrine without love is sheer hypocrisy. And a life without a fervent love for Jesus Christ and the brethren is one that evidences no communion with Jesus Christ. Dear ones, shall we be the recipient of such riches of love, such grace and mercy, and yet hide them or selfishly hoard them to ourselves? Known Dear ones, by others around you, to be those who are merciful in loving others and showing mercy to others. You see, so often to put oneself out for others, to inconvenience oneself for others, to go the extra mile for others is very foreign in the fast-paced society in which we live and the very self-centered society in which we live. Love, mercy, and forgiveness in a Christian's life are evidences of communion with the Lord Jesus Christ because, dear ones, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot spend time enjoying Christ and communing with the Lord whose love and mercy you have come to know and enjoy without demonstrating it in your own life. It's impossible. The Lord calls us in his word today to look to the evidences of our communion with Christ and to rejoice in all those evidences as they manifest themselves in our lives. For we know by them that we have communion with Christ. But by the same token, if those evidences are not present, to be driven to the face of God, to plead for his mercy, to call out to him to demonstrate those evidences of communion with Christ in your life and mine. Please stand with me in prayer. <clears throat> o lover of our soul, even our God, thou who hast condescended to have communion with vile sinners, saved by the wondrous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon us. Cause us, Lord, to see that those who truly know Thee are not those who simply rejoice in a union with Thee, but those who rejoice in a communion with Thee as well. O Lord our God, Drive us to see the end of our salvation, the goal of our salvation, which is to enjoy Thee forever. We pray, Father, that we would be willing to sacrifice whatever it is in our lives that keeps us from that communion with Thee, that we would be willing to repent and turn from all of our wicked and evil ways for having fallen from Thee, for having left our first love and that we would renew our vows, that we would renew this day our covenant with Thee to follow Thee in all of Thy ways and to enjoy Thee. Have mercy, Lord, upon us and grant to us our desire that our faith would not simply be an external faith of going through the motions, but that it would be a glorious communion with Thee. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.